0: Hi there, welcome to or welcome back to the Shift Control Podcast. My name is Paul McAnallen. Thanks for joining me on the show. I'm delighted to bring you my third uh, conversation, third podcast with um, Professor Damien Hughes, who is a consultant psychologist, sports psychologist, author and professor. And um, since I last spoke to Damien, he's been really busy. I spoke to him in May. Um, where we chatted about his work, um, coaching, sports psychology. Um, he's written a number of books. Um, he's written a book on Sir Alex Ferguson, which is really uh, well worth reading. And he's also written a book called um, Five Steps to a Winning Mindset, um, which is just is really brilliant. Um, and I am unashamedly gifting a lot of clients and friends with a copy this year because um, I just think it's a it's an excellent read. Um, Damien is working on a new book at the minute. Um, about Barcelona and how um, culture can impact uh, performance and how that can relate to sporting teams as well as uh, sales, business management teams, and everything else. So it's kind of um on point with the work that I've been doing recently. Um, he's just a really interesting guy, you know. Um, a, just yeah i just really enjoy this and would be great to get some feedback from you and um, i got a lot of feedback from the last two podcasts that damien guested in and i know that people who have read the book um five steps to a mini mindset really really enjoyed it um i hope you get as much crack out of this one and um i'll catch up with you soon okay damien it's really good to get uh, talking to you again
1: yeah it's an absolute pleasure to be here paul we spoke in may i remember and uh I really enjoyed our chat then, so I'm delighted to to be invited back. Thank you for having me.
0: No, you're you're definitely, you're really welcome, man. Um, I'm going to cut straight into some questions that have been kind of bugging me um, since we last spoke. Um, There are a couple of really good things that you've been working on um, as as recently as The Weekend, um, sort of the work that you're doing with uh, Scottish Rugby. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah, well, it's a real privilege to be a, a member of um, a, a member of the coaching team there. So, um, this time last year, um, the head coach, um, really impressive guy called Gregor Townsend, um, was appointed as the Scotland coach to take over in summer twenty seventeen, and um, I went to meet Gregor a couple of times to to just share some of our coaching philosophies and hear a little bit about um his plans for what he wanted to do with Scotland and felt really privileged that he asked us to to join his team when he took over in the summer. So I started in May uh, with them and then um, we did the tour of Australia and Fiji before uh, we've just done the Autumn Internationals now where we played Samoa, uh, New Zealand and um, Australia on Saturday.
0: So I'm going to go back to the game before... um Australia and I suppose playing the All Blacks at any yeah. time of the year, there's um, there's always a great deal of excitement and I suppose from the Northern Hemisphere teams up until recently there's always been the expectation of defeat. How how was you, how did you plan for that game?
1: Well, the first thing that we did was that um, was that the coaches are, are phenomenally talented guys. I mean, this has been one of the real privileges to get an insight into, not just Gregor, but his team, he's got a couple of great assistants, a guy called Dan McFarlane and Matt Taylor, are, are, are two of them. And I think what I've noticed for all the games, um, and they were consistent about this with the New Zealand one, is just the level of preparation they put into communicating is huge. So, on average, I think if they're going to speak to the players for 20 minutes, what I'm seeing is there's around seven hours worth of preparation going into that 20 minutes communication which I think there's some real lessons there for business as well, in terms of for anyone that wants to get over a message, whether it's to a customer or to the staff, just the importance of actually preparing and being, and being so rigorous in how you get your message over has been a real eye opener. So to go back to the New Zealand example, um, they were entirely consistent. They treated New Zealand exactly the same as they treated Samoa or the preparations against Italy in the summer or when we played Fiji. They were consistent in the way that they analysed them and presented that to the players. So I suppose there was a lesson in terms of they didn't put New Zealand on a pedestal. They treated them the same as everybody else, which helps in terms of normalising it because, like you say, it's like in boxing where people used to say, uh, Mike Tyson would beat his opponents before they got in the ring with them. New Zealand, I can imagine, have beaten a number of opponents before they even step on the field. Undoubtedly.
0: Whereas, yeah, undoubtedly, yeah.
1: whereas for the Scotland players, there was never a sense that they were going up against anybody different. It was they're another team and they're another team that we're going to prepare to be.
0: So, so the the outcome of the game, regardless of the preparation, that's interesting. Like seven hours prep time into twenty minutes, twenty minutes of of that communication. It shows you the importance of communication. It also shows you the importance of of preparation. But the game, the game kind of panned out as maybe uh, many um, observers would have thought. New Zealand won that game, but um, you were saying just before we went on air, there was a different feel to the Scotland team after that game.
1: Yeah. So, like from my point of view. It was in the dressing room afterwards that 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 I really sort of noticed that when I went into the dressing room, it was a scene of real desolation. That the players were utterly devastated and felt that um, felt that we should have won it without any question. And um, I mean, we got beat by five points, but uh, the, but to me, it told me something quite powerful that there was no sort of perception amongst that dressing room amongst the squad themselves that they were like plucky losers or it was little scotland that given new zealand a, a, a real a real game it was that sense that we should have won that and that to me told me that in their perception they were starting the, the players i'm not saying they even started i think they already had it was that sense that that they can go toe-to-toe with the current best team in the world and can walk away from that feeling that they should have beaten them as well. And I just think that's a real shift that from my point of view to observe it, it was like, this is really interesting. There's something quite powerful going on here. And then to see what they did against Australia the week after, where they gathered themselves, they showed real resilience to come back. There was a humility to want to reflect on what they'd done well, but equally what they could do better. And then to take that into the next game. So they kept the same level of intensity up and then scored a record number of points for what Scotland have ever done against Australia when they beat them by nearly 30 points.
0: That's unreal. Um, so like it's evident that there's a, there's a shift in attitude, there's been a shift in, in mindset. Um, like the, before we came on air again, I talked to you about this kind of the GAA landscape and uh, sports psychology. Yeah. is you know it's the marmite people either think it works or 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 it, or it doesn't work but evidently I mean there is evidence to prove that sports psychology does work it's not really up for discussion at this stage surely
1: um I think it, it, it well it's an interesting debate that people have and um, the argument that I would often go back to around psychology in anything it, it's just simply thinking about thinking and I'd say it to a player i would say if you wanted advice about your diet, you'd go and speak to a nutritionist, or if you wanted advice about how do you get faster or fitter or stronger, you'd go and speak to a strength and conditioning coach, or if you know, if you had a muscular problem, you'd go and speak to a physio and get advice on that. So for a player to say, Well, how do you cope under pressure? Let's just understand a little bit about your coping mechanisms or how do you draw on reserves of confidence when things might not be going so well, or how do you communicate more effectively with a, with a teammate? Yeah. I think for, for players to just go and look at some of those strategies is effectively what sports psychology is. I think where scepticism about it can abound is that most of sports psychology is the application of common sense, and it's the application of common sense where it's not always common practice. And I think some people can present it as a dark art or the ability to read into people's heads or things like that. And the reality is that's nonsense. You're just giving people comments and strategies to cope under periods of pressure. So I think if people are sceptical about it, it's because they've heard others present it as a dark art, and it really isn't that in my experience.
0: No, and I think that's an interesting way to frame it because... Um Thinking about thinking is a, is a nice way to, um, uh, to, to put, put a little bit of clarity to it, I suppose.
1: Well, well I'll give you an, an illustration then, Paul. Of, 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 that I did some work in the summer with the, um, with the England Rugby League guys, um, and they're playing out in Australia in the World Cup at the moment. So the final, they're up against Australia on, um, on Saturday morning. And we did a simple exercise with them where we got the players to say, right, think about your best game that you've had in the last six months. And then we got them to proportion how much of that performance was down to their physical skills, like being faster or fitter or stronger than, the, than their opponent, and how much of it was down to the mental skills. And by the mental skills, we spoke about their ability to work as a team or to be able to cope under pressure or how to handle difficult moments. And we got them to proportion how much of their performance was physical and how much of it was mental. And then I got the players to stand up and I said, right, sit down. If your best performance, you're apportioning 10% of it down to the mental skills, then 20%, then 30. Now the reality is not one player sat down before we reached seventy percent. You know, that's when I'd say the vast majority did. There was a few that got to 80, and then there was one or two that sat down when it was ninety percent. So my question to those players was, okay, if you're telling me that your best performance, if seventy percent of it was down to that mental skills, let's have a look at where you proportion most of your working week. And the reality is, they spent most of their week on the physical skills, about ninety five percent of it, and yet only five percent of it on the mental skills. Yeah. And and it was and the paradox I pointed out to them was, if you're telling me most of your performance is on that area, why don't you open yourself up to the idea of Speaking to somebody that maybe can help you or reading a book that might be around that topic or debating it as a group of players just to think about how you can improve or how, uh, you know, sharing some of your colleagues' coaching strategies. So that's very much where I'd encourage sceptics to think about it. Go and ask the players themselves and see about how much of their own best performance is down to these skills and then help them understand like one of the key phrases I often use with whether it's sport or business is success leaves clues. So go and look at where you've done it already and just almost codify it or break it down into simple, repeatable actions that you can take and use again and again and again.
0: Can can I ask you a question? It's probably gonna sure. sound if it sounds vulgar, I don't mean to um oh, don't but, worry. No, but I am conscious how it will sound. It's I'm just gonna say it as it's in my head. So the people that you're um speaking to so there's maybe 30 guys in a team right yeah and they're all professional athletes but not necessarily all of them maybe they have the same bandwidth comprehensive comprehension or sure. absorption rates as as others how how easy is it to get that message clearly and succinctly across to a group of people where the understanding level varies like a like a graphic equalizer
1: yeah it's a really good question i mean In any group, you'll get some people that buy into it, some people that just dismiss it, some people that understand it, some that maybe would struggle a little bit. And I think where I've got to is that I very rarely would want to try and stand in front of a room of 30 athletes and try and persuade them to join in with it because I don't feel that that I have the credibility to do that because some athletes would sit there and go, why do I need to listen to you? So that's where my real interest lies in working with the coaches. Yeah. Because when a coach stands up and gives you an instruction, if your selection depends on it, you're more likely to at least listen to it and give it a go. So I have no ego in terms of wanting to stand up in front of a group of players. I'm, I'm happy to do it if I need to, but my interest is actually equipping the coaches to be able to deliver that same message because they have so much more credibility amongst the playing squad.
0: Very good, yeah,
1: okay, and and, they, and then and, 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 and then what I take comes out of that is any players that then want to pursue it a little bit deeper, I'm happy to pick up with them individually, but I think you're on a bit of a losing battle if you stood in front of a group of players when you've got some cynics in the room that really don't want to engage with it because there's no incentive to do it, and nor should they feel obliged to if they really feel that there's nothing to be gained from it,
0: yeah
1: I've no interest in wanting to waste their time either
0: you you're I know this isn't about titles but it's about again trying to frame and trying to put context to the job that you had you were a consultant to the coaches
1: yeah yeah yes yeah so so when um, when um I sat down with grego um Townsend we spoke about this and uh like you could say that it's it's a matter of semantics, I prefer to say that um it is important to to almost define your role. So my role with the Scotland guys is as a coaching consultant, because I, I'm almost a consultant for the coaches. To draw and I'm a resource for them. That I feel yeah. um, a coaching consultant better defines it than uh, than describing myself as a sports psychologist.
0: Yeah, you you kind of um, well, there's the same kind of stigma attached to the word consultant too. Sometimes, so it's you can't win sometimes yeah, I know, I know. I
1: think it's yeah, but I think consultant is is a little bit more opaque than <laughs> a psychologist because when people hear that that's my role, some people think a psychologist is to come in and fix you because you're broken. That's right. So therefore, there's almost there's all kinds of associations there, and the reality is you're not you're trying to help people see how good they are, not about how broken they are. You you're trying to get them to recognise. Uh, that they've that they're already successful. It's just how do they how do they harness it to be even more successful?
0: I'm I'm almost tempted to ask you for some uh, some of those special uh, tips on coping mechanisms and that, but um, I'll uh, I'll get you offline maybe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, what I'd say, Paul, I mean, I'd, I'll, I'll happily share them, and you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to to write around some of them in in the books that I've done. What I always say is I often remind, um, like whether it's an athlete or a corporate audience that I'm working with, I remember years ago, um, my mum coming along. So when I was made a professor at Manchester Met University, um, I did a welcome lecture where you do it to like your fellow academics and and students and you have to talk around some of uh, your areas that you're comfortable to discuss. And my mum had no real idea what I did and she came along and when I'd finished, I said to her, what do you think, mum? And she said, she said, it reminded me of an episode of Faulty Towers. And I said, what do you mean? And she, and she recounted, there was one episode once where Basil's having a row with Sybil, his wife. And halfway through the argument, he turns around and he said, if you were to go mastermind, your specialist subject would be the bleeding obvious. And my mum said, my mum said everything you were talking about was bleeding obvious. And I said, well, it, that's a compliment in its own way. Because it is it's common, it's the application of common sense. That's the best way to describe it then.
0: Yeah, very good. But so I I'm gonna pull you back up on the you've written it. Um you do mention this a lot in your books and I wanna say a couple of things is it's probably a very clumsy link into what I want to talk to you about next. But um these <laughs> the six um the six or oh, the five steps I have the book in front of me, I don't know why I'm saying the six. The five steps has been really well received by um guys over here. The last podcast would have maybe encouraged Uh, several of my friends to go and buy it and um, it's a really, really brilliant a really brilliant read Oh, thank you,
1: appreciate that
0: No, I'm totally, totally serious man the brilliance of it is the simplicity of the narrative, and I don't mean that by you just make it really easy to understand
1: Oh, well thank you, I mean the the, the, I think like, it it took a lot of work to try and make it as simple as that, if that makes sense. So, so I take that as a real compliment, and I am grateful for that feedback because I do think that a, um, a good book is something that you are that is almost effortless to read, but it takes a lot of effort to make it so effortless.
0: Yeah, no, there's no, there's no doubt about it, man. It, it, it's really. Um it's really skillfully written. It's very, very thought-provoking at the right time, the right places. And it's always good to get an acronym that kind of works, you know. Um, and and it, it, the, the book itself is, um, I would be uh, recommending it to a lot of people and gifting it to a few clients and friends for Christmas. So, um, well, that's
1: really kind. A, Thank you, great Paul. Bit
0: of work. Um, the, the, moving on to then a little bit of writing that you've been doing since we last spoke on a, a Barcelona.
1: Yeah, yeah. So... Um, I I took a project on so the publishers had asked me what I wanted to do after I'd done the five steps and uh, I went back to them and said to them that I'd like to do a book on high-performing cultures because I think people talk about this idea of a high-performing culture or even just that word culture and and it's a phrase that gets bandied around without I think people either understanding it or being able to explain how to do it. So the publishers said It sounds great, but you almost need to give us uh, an illustration. So that led me to think about, well, what organisation, like what sports organisations, because he wanted the sporting link again, but what sports organisations have got a really healthy culture and yet have delivered success uh, over such a period that it would be difficult for a reader to argue about it and say, well, I disagree with them, or, you know, where sort of sporting rivalries could interfere. So that pretty much narrows your market down right away and that's where Barcelona, from a football point of view, really stood out for me as as as, as an, as an organisation to go and explore in more depth. So I spent around two years um, back and forth and interviewing a number of people that were involved in the club and getting them to explain to me quite how they went around doing it. So I was really lucky to interview um like a lot of the architects of this, and what I found was that um, it took me back to back in 2008 when uh, Frank Reichard was dismissed as the head coach. Barcelona had a really what appeared to be quite a stark choice at the time that they went and interviewed five different coaches to take over. So uh, Lauren Blanc was one, Ronald Koeman was another, um, and then they interviewed Jose Mourinho. And at that stage, it was almost a no-brainer that Mourinho should have been given the job. He'd he'd been successful in Portugal. He'd been successful in England. Uh, I think he'd done a first year at Inter Milan where he'd been successful. And Barcelona was the obvious job for him. Mm -hmm. And yet they decided to go with um, Guardiola, who at the time had only just got one year's experience coaching the Barcelona B team. Mm -hmm. So there's a phrase that the writer John Carlin uses. He said it'd be like putting a a local store manager in charge of Sony and yeah. nobody being surprised. But what became really interesting interviewing a number of the people around it was that they identified the need to put culture at the front and center of what they did. So Guardiola's appointment, while it looks a bit incongruous on the surface, actually made perfect sense when you viewed it through the lens of culture. So what do I mean by it? Well, culture is affected. So I've identified five things that, that their the culture can almost be defined by. But the first one that it starts with, so the acronym I've used is BARSA. because okay. of the obvious link. But the first one is this idea of you is the behaviors. So it's around you articulate the behaviors of what your culture is about. And what Barcelona had done was, again, to repeat that phrase from earlier about success leaves clues. They said, well, what do we stand for? When we've been successful, what are the behaviors that have been endemic throughout our culture? And they identified three trademark behaviours. So the first one is humility. So what the, So there's a phrase that I interviewed a guy called Cheeky Bagheer this time, who's now the director of football at Manchester City. But he, but he was there when Guardiola took over. And he gave a lovely phrase. He said, he said, talent will get you into our dressing room, but how you behave decides if we'll keep you there. So his point was that we'll get talented players anyway, So we need to define the behavioural standards that we expect. So the first one was humility because his point was you might be a talented footballer, but if you're not humble, you can't learn and get better. So that was the first one. The second one was about hard work. So they said if you're talented, you've got to invest in that talent to get better. Mm -hmm. And then the third one was you put the team above your own self-interest. So what they communicated to all the players was, these are the three behaviours that are non-negotiable. If you remember this dressing room, that's what we're going to do. So what became interesting was that one of Guardiola's stipulations before he took over was that the club remove three of their talismanic players. So Ronaldinho was one, Deco was the other, and Eto was his third one because he just didn't feel that they demonstrated those behaviours consistently enough. Ronaldinho... yeah, well what they found about Ronaldinho was that immensely talented as he was, they felt that for eighteen months previously, uh, his, his his lifestyle had started to get a little bit more wayward in terms of the partying and and his focus was seen to have have, have, have been diluted a little bit. Yeah. So I'll give you a, a statistic that when you first did it, you go, Wow, that's like I found it interesting from a cultural point of view that he was one of the most powerful players and every like one of the players that I interviewed described him as the most important uh, player in Barcelona's history since alongside Johan Cruyff. So he was seen very much as one of their talisman. Now there's a stat that I came across where in the 18 months prior to his departure uh, I think 10 of the 26 man squad had either separated from their partners or got divorced. Now okay, wow. Now, when you know that, you go, well, how does that apply? Well, Ronaldinho was a single guy, and he was out there partying an awful lot. I mean, there's stories about Messi, that there was two stories in the newspaper where Messi um, had a drink-driving accident coming back from one of his parties when he was just 18 years old. Now, fortunately, he crashed into a fellow Barcelona fan that was happy to sort of deal with it off the record. But there was all kinds of sort of standards that were starting to slip because what you'll often find in the culture is if your most talented player is allowed to get away with that, yeah. you create a bit of a set of behavioral norms for the others. So it was never personal. And this was one of the things that, 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 that became quite interesting that it wasn't about that they thought he was a bad guy or that they had a lack of respect for him. They just said, if we're going to go in this new direction and, the, and this new culture is going to be important, we can't afford to make exceptions to the rule. So another more more personal example is that they bought Zlatan Ibrahimovic for 70 million euros, and 10 months later they sold him for 40 million euros. And the essence of why they did it wasn't because he wasn't talented or he wasn't a decent bloke. He just didn't fit those behavioural um, standards that they'd said. So in his own book, Zlatan gives you some great examples where he talks about on his first day at the club, Guardiola had come up to him and gave him the keys to his Club Audi. And he said, listen, I know you've got a lot of uh, expensive sports cars, but don't drive them into training. Drive your Club Audi. And he'd asked why. And he said, well, humility is one of our behaviours. And mm-hmm. it doesn't, it, it, you know, driving a Ferrari into training betrays what our behaviours are about. And Ibrahimovic agreed to it. I think it's about four months into his tenure at Barcelona, he gets dropped for an important game and in a fit of peak, he drives into training the next day in his Ferrari and there's a huge furore around it in the in the Catalan press. You know, there's another occasion where he's asked to play a different position than what he's used to and he goes to Guardiola after the game and says, I'm a Fiat and you're driving... He says, I'm a Ferrari and you're driving me like I'm a Fiat. So he's... So... He's not So he's not displaying humility, he's not putting the team above his own self-interest. So there's examples like that where they just said, we cannot afford to compromise our behaviours for one individual, which was why they made the decision to eventually let him move on elsewhere. So That's
0: very interesting uh, indeed. And, you know, as, you, as you're talking there, I do remember uh, a time when uh, the start of the season um, for Barca and um, I think it was a uh, was it Ronaldinho was had to pull the jersey up to prove he had lost weight. He that's right. Yeah, yeah. the pitch, yeah. and he started pulling the jersey up and tapping his stomach to say, "Look, I'm not partying anymore," or, or whatever. He was, he was making some kind of apology to the fans. I think I don't know.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because at the time there was all kinds of rumours about. I mean, there's, there was another story that he um, he would occasionally turn up for training direct from a nightclub. And there was physios that were sort of doing their best to cover for him. Some of the some of the support staff were giving him sort of nutritional drinks to try and rehabilitate him quickly. There was other stories that in certain games that when he felt he'd done enough, he would uh, he would he would signal uh, that that he wanted to come off, and he was accommodated for doing that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lovely story that um, Lionel Messi's dad recounts it. That he was uh, Messi was coming out of tr- out of a game one day and he was following Ronaldinho. And Messi's dad was waiting in the car for him. And Messi jumps in the car and drove off and drove past like a, like say thirty autograph hunters that had been waiting outside the stadium. And his dad made him turn round and go back, and said to him, "I brought you up to be better than that. Go back and show your appreciation to those fans." And there was little things like that that there was a concern that such was. Ronaldinho's influence that Messi was starting to to follow his practice because why wouldn't you? He's the best player, he's one of your idols. And if he's showing you that you can get away with that, why wouldn't you want to accommodate it yourself?
0: Is this similar to uh, Ferguson at United? Um was it Ronaldo and a player that was in, standing in the queue and somebody well, that was in your book with Ferguson? Wasn't That's it?
1: right, yeah, yeah. So there's a story about um um, when Robbie Brady the Northern Irish um, That's
0: right,
1: yeah uh, international where, when he was a young boy and uh, he allowed Ronaldo to go in front of him in uh, in the queue at the, at the canteen and Ferguson stopped him and said why did you do that and Brady allegedly said to him because it's Ronaldo he's the best player in the world and Ferguson had said "Well, I want you to believe that you're better than him because if you don't believe it how can you expect the coaches to buy into that and Ferguson's a really good example of it because he cites the influence of Cantona coming into United as a catalyst to change the culture there because he talks about how Cantona showed about the benefits of staying behind and investing in your talent of extra practice and professionalism and, and preparation. He talks about how that generation that came behind him, the likes of uh, Beckham, Scholes, but people like that, saw those standards being applied by the best player of the club and their question was, well, if he can do it, I definitely can invest that time. And he felt that that ripple effect lasted for another decade, at least afterwards.
0: So um, I want to get back to the acronym BARSA, OK? So, um, sure. So, so, so that was
1: behaviours, yeah. And then we talk about what I call the arc of change. So success never happens in straight lines. So from the outside looking in, you could go, all right, Guardiola came in and they won the treble that year. But what they work with the players on is to say that there are five stages of change happening. So we start off with the idea of a dream of what we want to achieve. Then we make a leap of faith, but then we will hit a stage in the middle where they call the fight stage, where we're going to have to struggle, where it becomes difficult, where uh, where you get too far in to go back, but you're not far enough to see the end. And that's where levels of engagement, motivation, discipline can start to drop. Then, you start to see progress where you climb out of that before you finally reach that stage of arrival. So Guardiola got the place to understand that it wasn't going to be a one-year journey. It was um, effectively a three-year journey. Now it's interesting because he stayed for four years and that final year, he felt that he'd sort of, he was physically and emotionally spent, which was when they struggled to win anything. Yeah. But, he did So the arc of change was get the players to buy in for the long term, not just looking for short-term successes. And the board were really clear on that. The R, the R bit of it was around um, repeated processes. So what, what we found is that the phrase I identified is they had a number of what they call keystone habits. So these are habits that you practice relentlessly. So you look at the habits that are going to define you. So, there's different arguments about how many they had, but I focus on two of them. So the first habit that they had was around what they call the five-second rule. So what they identified was that that when the opposition have the ball, they're most vulnerable to lose it in the first five seconds after they get it. So one of their rules was that you cha- they chase the opponents down really high with high intensity for the first five seconds because that gives you the best chance of winning it back. Then, if you don't win it back after five seconds, you retreat and you defend. But the second rule they had was they aim for 70% possession of the ball in the game because they've worked out through all the analysis that if you keep possession for 70% of the time, you'll beat your opposition just because you'll exhaust them towards the end of the game. The levels of exhaustion required to keep chasing it are going to exhaust them. So one of the big fundamental factors of their whole training is they call it the rondo but it's basically it's like playing piggy in the middle it's keep ball but they put a huge amount of focus on this ability that you don't always have to kick the ball forward you just have to keep possession and because you're not trying to beat your opponent in the first five minutes you're trying to beat them in the last five minutes so it's about having that discipline so again like the applicability of this to the corporate world which is what i'm hoping people will see when the book comes out in the summer is that idea of well, what are your keystone habits that you need to engage? Whether it's about, you know, do you respond to a customer within an hour of getting that phone call, or is it about the level of, Like it, it, it might be a particular working practice that you have that you just don't compromise on and you get your employees up to such a high level of competence they can almost do it in their sleep? I, I
0: agree with you completely in that the um, in the some of the coaching that, that we would do in, in sales and high-performance teams. And, and the definition of high performance is relative to the organisation and the sector that they're working in, but everybody wants to improve. And one of the things that um, most salespeople and sales teams feel is because they genuinely don't have um, a process. They don't have a process that they stick to, so they don't have these keystone kind of behaviours to, to address. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so
1: it's all, but And again... The, and I make no apologies for repeating. Success leaves clues, so look at where you're good, and analyse it. And say, well, what's the process? What like what can we do time and time again, that gives us the clue about how uh, about how we can keep repeating it.
0: Yeah, there's a brilliant video um of Guardiola when he's doing working with Bayern Munich, and. Um, it was Bayern Munich, wasn't it? Yeah, he and he yeah, yeah. he does. Um, it's about twenty. Um, it's that ticky tacky thing where they're in a the circle and it's to keepy uh, keep the, that Rondo thing, and it's amazing. The the intensity that it gets to, and the ferocity, and the, the how serious and how focused the players are, and you talk about that in, the, in a uh, in a in a sales environment, you can't get salespeople to be focused for eight hours, but you can get them to work in bursts of twenty five to forty five minutes. You know where they're. Hundred um,
1: percent. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that's a really good point, Paul. That 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 they're not looking for you to be perfect mm-hmm. for ninety minutes of a game. They're just looking to say there are there are certain key moments where you need to be perfect, and so focus on getting them right, and the peripheral stuff will take care of itself anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. So a, I
1: mean, Scotland's an interesting one, and without betraying any confidences of the camp, there like. It's on public record that one of... The, so Gregor's intention is that Scotland will play the fastest rugby in the world. So where we're trying to get the players to is playing at such a such a speed and intensity that, 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 that we can distinguish ourselves in that way. So some of the keystone behaviours that we've identified there relate to how do we... Um, lay the ball off or how uh, about how fast our defending speed is there are certain keystone behaviors that you say if you're if you're hitting certain targets there there's a good chance that the rest of the performance will be at that equal pace but you can't get them to think of everything it's just about give them two or three areas that each individual can focus on delivering in the hope that the 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 that the outcome will naturally follow.
0: So, so you, you're, like, I mean, it's, it's almost like trying to create the perfect storm uh, psychologically, physiologically, attitudinally, behaviourally over the course of 80 minutes. Like you're, And you're looking for a, a series of small perfect storms rather than just, to, to get 50 odd points against Australia shows that there are quite a number of perfect storms.
1: Yeah, I mean, from the player's point of view, the, 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 the It's far easier if if you've got two or three areas that you can focus on rather than worrying about the outcome. So don't worry about the outcome of the game. Get your processes right. Focus on the bit that you and your particular group you've been working with can do and and the outcome will almost take care of itself if you can do that
0: totally it's say start the journey with a destination in mind create the process and forget about the destination and just become a slave to the process that's what i've been drilling into salespeople. you know this is exactly yeah
1: exactly and and and, and i know the value of the work that you do in that area paul and that's what i'm hoping that this barcelona book can show that that it's not that they they're exceptionally talented, and you put talented people together, and they naturally deliver. Because we know as well as anyone else that that's not how it works. This is about putting talented people together, but giving them structures in which they can be talented within.
0: What does the C stand for?
1: The C stands for cultural architects. So what I mean by that is that 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 we. I think we get deluded in this idea that in the myth of the guru or the inspirational leader or the one charismatic individual that uh, that creates it. And the reality was, in a culture like that, you need to have people at all levels of the organisation that both understand, buy into, embed and reinforce the behaviours that are necessary. So there's a great example of... I, 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 I I use um, the example of Puyol who is the captain. That there's a number of examples that are just really powerful. The, like my favourite one is that they're playing Real Numancia in a game at the at, at the Nou Camp, and uh, they end up beating them seven 0 But after the fifth goal goes in, it's scored by one of their um, their academy players a guy called Thiago who went on to play for Bayern Munich oh, yeah. And, and and after he scores the goal he runs over to uh, Daniel Alves the Brazilian fullback and they both start uh, doing this pre-rehearsed uh, samba dance together uh-huh. and there's a few of the players sort of looking around laughing and Puyo runs over and intervenes and stops them doing the dance and instructs them to get back to the halfway line and after the game he comes out and issues an apology to the Real Numancia players. And the reason he apologises, he says, I'm sorry. He said, we wanted to beat you, and we were keen to score as many goals as we could. But doing a dance like that doesn't doesn't um, demonstrate humility. You know, he said, you're honest professionals, and, and, and we weren't looking to embarrass you, so we want to apologise for what we did. Now, what's interesting is when you see him do it, the other players immediately respect the point that he's making because the rules of humility are, are well understood by them. So when he comes over to remind them of it, you're not waiting for a coach to come and do it. And, it, and, and this is one of the phrases that I use in organisations. I say, catch people in, don't catch them out. Yeah. Catch people doing things right, don't necessarily worry about catch them doing it wrong. And give people the, if people feel that, that they understand what the behaviours are and what they're supposed to mean, Give people that confidence, create that trust and safety in the culture where people can say, stop doing that, that's not acceptable. Or equally, when they are doing it well, acknowledge it and spend time doing that.
0: Because Carlos Poole, he would be probably the player of, well, I'd say, of the previous team that would be most representative, that I would consider most representative of the values of a team like Barcelona, just by his own field behaviour.
1: Yeah, exactly. But 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 equally the interesting thing is you probably wouldn't describe him as the most as the most talented of that group. You know, I think Puyol himself would say he was probably the uh, he was the hardest working, but he was certainly the least naturally gifted. But yeah. the, but this is a point that you won't it's not about talent necessarily. Talent married up with the behaviours becomes really important and, and in his case it was his example through his own behaviours that established him as one of the leaders. Now, that idea of cultural architects, this is a phrase that um, it's a its a guy I met many years ago. Unfortunately, he's passed away now, but he's a Norwegian psychologist called Willy Raylio. And he spoke about that, and he argued that in any culture, so in a sports team, you need at least five or six cultural architects, people that embody the behaviours of that culture for it to... To create a critical mass where it becomes more difficult to to challenge it if you've got five or six of the of the playing group that embody it and hold it and and, and, and hold it close
0: close yeah, to the heart. I remember working in a in a company in a newspaper in England and it was really at the peak of this particular publication's powers. It was ninety five, ninety four, ninety five, ninety six when um Labour government had come in and there was a real sense of optimism or misguided optimism, but there was optimism at the time anyway. And there was a real change. It was Oasis against blur, and a lot of good stuff going on. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we had a sales team of, I think, 90 people. There were 12 of us. And within the 12, there was probably a core of about six. And the energy from... You know, you're talking about flow. You're talking about um, not. I would. I wouldn't say a peak performance because that's a bit grandiose. But the, the, when we got into the flow, the energy from the team was amazing, and the culture that was created as a result of it—it it was a real high-energy culture that worked really well for that time. You know. Um, yeah. And you do need a nucleus, I guess, to try and. You need a, a core people to try and drive it forward.
1: Yeah, definitely, and that's what. And uh, so. So Barcelona recruited against that. Oh, here so, that, I wasn't comparing. With,
0: I wasn't comparing what we did to Barcelona, by the way. I just realized. No, 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 like. no,
1: you wasn't. But, <laughs> but, 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 but the principles still apply. So, I mean, there's an interesting quote that Guardiola gave um, around. So he promoted uh, Pedro and Busquets from from the reserve team to come with him, and he, and he bought Mascarano. And when he was asked about why he promoted. Uh, or, or or bore those three players his answer was really interesting he said he said I've done it because they don't have uh, silly haircuts tattoos or um, or earrings and when he was asked well why is that significant he said well what that tells me about them is they don't want to be famous for anything other than playing football they don't want to be noticed off the football field they're not looking for attention other than when they're on the field and he felt that that those kind of characters, I mean you can accommodate some that wouldn't do that, but he felt that you needed a nucleus of those guys that were just dedicated to their craft that just wanted to improve and improve the team that they were a member of rather than look to make it all about them
0: That's very interesting yeah that is very interesting the, the like um, there's a real affinity with Barcelona here in Ireland um, Patrick O'Connell who first played for Belfast Celtic way back in the day, went on to play for Man United, ended up being the manager of both Real Betis and oh, Barcelona. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah,
1: of course, yeah, sorry, yeah, and I'm familiar with the name, yeah.
0: And um, they, they, they put a memorial to him in um, at Real Betis's ground, I think last summer, or maybe it was this summer, I don't remember, but they, there was a big fundraise to try and get money for the season of course. Yeah, no, you, 1930- yeah, you're right, Paul, yeah, I
1: remember, sorry.
0: yeah. Um, so I'm moving on. I'm conscious of time here, Damien, and it's been as always it's been brilliant talking to you. Just push on to the A for or the A of Barça.
1: The A is authentic leadership. So it's about you need to have a. Le- so there's a really interesting statistic that um, a couple of Dutch e- economists did this about about leaders, it, 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 and they were looking at it in football, but the principle applies, I think, pretty much across the board. They reckon that that any leader. The, the maximum amount of impact that they will have is approximately 10%. So, as I said to you earlier, we get involved in this myth that we think the leader is the be-all and end-all and, and, and we sort of put them on a pedestal, when the reality is, the analogy they use is they say, it's probably like thinking of it as the prime minister of a country. So, no individual will have more impact on sort of the economy of a country, but they won't make or break it. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So from, from a leadership point of view, there's another bit of research then that said so or from a cultural point of view, that if you've got a leader that is aligned with the behaviors, it almost negates the lack of experience that they have. So so somebody that really embodies the the cultural behaviors, you you can almost get away with them not having 10 years of experience, for example. So What Guardiola was a great example of doing was that he embodied those behaviours of humility, hard work, and putting the team above his own self-interest. And he'd almost, you know, that was what he was like as a bloke, that was what he'd been like as a player. So he was almost the perfect um, illustration of a guy that could live it. So I'll just give you a quick example about about what that looks like. When he first took over, he, he got offered quite a lucrative contract by a Catalan bank. Mm-hmm. To go and do a series of um, of of like leadership lectures, and he accepted the contract, and he got quite a lot of criticism in the uh, in the Catalan press for what they perceived as being quite greedy. What he never came out and he, so he didn't respond to any of the of, of the critics, but what he actually did was all the money that he got from this contract, he distributed it amongst his backroom staff, so he didn't take a penny of it himself. Because his point to the, his backroom staff was that I couldn't do my job if you didn't do your job so well. So yeah, as an example of humility, but equally putting the team above your own self-interest, yeah. just that mm-hmm. one example alone shows you that suddenly, if he's demanding those behaviours from his players, they can't look at him and go, yeah, but you don't do it. They have to look at him and go, well, you're the perfect embodiment of it. And that was why when he, so when he was giving these messages out there, the level of engagement naturally was so much deeper, so he was almost maximising that ten percent impact that 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 he was hoping to have.
0: Do you think he's he's, he's achieving the same kind of uh, or creating the same kind of legacy and blueprint at Man City?
1: I think it's interesting. Um, I I think I think he will, given time. I think that's what he's trying to do. I'd say the one thing that I would say about him is that uh, if they're the behaviours that he wants, I think. That's what he'll come across. I think what what worked for him, what was almost extra special for him at Barcelona was he's he, he uh, that he's obviously from Catalonia himself,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I think he had he he had extra kudos in the fact that he'd been such a celebrated player for them as well. Yeah. Whereas I don't think that necessarily at City he's got that level of emotional attachment to the cause at City that he obviously had. A, a, he uh, that he had at Barcelona, and I think you know it's interesting. You look at what he did at Bayern Munich. That criticism, that same criticism, was levelled at him at Bayern Munich. That whilst he came in and introduced um, this amazing brand of football and and and, and he revolutionised the football part of it, I'm not sure he impacted the culture in the same way that he did at Barcelona, and that's where I suppose it remains to be seen at City.
0: I think um, I know very little about about. German football, um, I'd say Barcelona would already have a pre-conceived idea of what their culture should be like, and would be therefore more difficult to shift. Certainly more challenging, and um, maybe Man City is more more new, and everybody's on this journey together more recently. Whereas there's kind of less less culture to deal with, you know, less inherited yes. culture, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, very much, and I think that, I, I, yeah, I think that's a really a point, Paul. I think I think Manchester City is a little bit more open to to his way of doing it, whereas Barcelona has got a really rich his, uh, history in terms of the political connotations and things like that that are associated with it as well.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Dude, we, we're out of time here, and I, I would definitely sit on and talk to you for ages. It's been so fascinating. Oh, I, um, I
1: enjoy it as always, Paul. And I mean, the book comes out in the summer, so uh, it's due to come out. Um, I think the publishers are tying it in with the the Football World Cup in Russia and then hopefully the start of uh, the new Premier League season. So, you know, the book will be out then, but I'd be more than happy if any of your listeners have got any particular questions about about the content that they might want to just find out a bit more beforehand or if it is next summer, I'm more than happy to come on and just chat in more detail about it.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, um, I'll, I'd like to get you on again, maybe um, in and around the Six Nations just to see how Yeah, definitely,
1: doing us. yeah, 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 definitely, <laughs> I'd love to, I mean, as I said, it's been a real privilege to, to work with such a class group of coaches, just, just as people, they're just incredibly, like, great people, and then the players, I think if there was one observation I'd make about them is, and this is the highest of compliments, I just think they're really coachable, Yeah. and I think the fact that you get players that are open to new ways of working has been, has been a real privilege to be amongst them so yeah i'd be more than happy to come and to come and chat about it
0: no it's it's been, it's been um I, I i was watching i saw your picture on, on twitter on at the weekend and i was delighted for you it's a brilliant it's a brilliant achievement for the team and, and to, for you to be part of it is um it's no way uh, uh, main achievement so well well done on that and good luck with with the oh, rest well, thank of, you, you know. paul i'm really grateful Good luck. Good luck with the Barsa. Um i I'm gonna. You'll be over in Belfast. We'll get you over in Belfast, like I promised you the last time this summer. We just didn't uh, deliver that, but we will do. I'd I love to you. do
1: that. Yeah, honestly, I I came over in um, in September to speak to the um, to the Northern Ireland uh, the Northern Ireland Coaches That's right. Association, and uh, I was at, I was in Belfast at the Titanic yeah. Museum, and it's been about. I was thinking when I was there, I think it had been about twelve years since I've been back in Belfast, and. I was, I, it literally took my breath away. Just the changes that have gone on in in your beautiful city. I was really hugely impressed. So, any opportunity to get back, I'd love to.
0: I will. Um, they will take you into the countryside and take you up to Tyrone. They will take you to the um, the sort of the centre of uh, Gaelic football in Tyrone, which is an impressive enough facility. But I think that there's a we have an event every every year um, aimed at um, business people, and it's all about Creating high-performance teams, and it's all about um, growth, and it's all about behavior and creating culture. So, um, we'll definitely, I would definitely promise you that we will get you over for that, Damien. That's a promise.
1: Oh well, well, that'd be a real privilege. I'd love to. So, yeah, do do bear me in mind for it then, Paul.
0: I well, will do, man. Listen, I will let you go. Thanks very much again. That was a great chat, and I look forward to catching up with you again sometime soon. Yeah,
1: likewise, and thanks for and thanks for your interest. It it, it really does mean a lot to me.
0: All right, cheers, man. Take it easy.
1: Cheers, Paul. Bye.